Good afternoon. Thank you so much for being here. My name is Danny Postel. I work at Northwestern University in Chicago, and it is my distinct honor uh, to be chairing this panel discussion this evening here at the LSE Middle East Center on a new book that my colleague Nader Hashemi and I have co-edited in conversation with three of the contributors to the volume, who are the three contributors based here in the UK. Uh, the book, as you probably know, is titled Sectarianization, Mapping the New Politics of the Middle East. So let me just say uh, a little bit about how uh, the proceedings are going to unfold this evening. Um, our first speaker will be Nader Hashemi. He's going to lay out the overall argument of the book, and then we are going to hear from Madawi al-Rashid, uh, and then Eskandar Sadegi Burujerdi, and then Toby Matisin, and about each of their chapters. Madawi's chapter, by the way, uh, is titled Sectarianism as Counter-Revolution, Saudi Responses to the Arab Spring. Uh, Eskandar Sadegi Burujerdi will discuss his chapter, Strategic Depth, Counterinsurgency and the Logic of Sectarianization, the Islamic Republic of Iran's Security Doctrine and its Regional Implications. And then finally, Toby Matiasin will discuss his chapter, Sectarianization as Securitization, Identity Politics and Counter-Revolution in Bahrain. I suspect that most of you know a bit about Madawi al-Rashid because she is right here at the Middle East Center. But for purposes of the video that's being made of this evening's event, let me just let the rest of the world outside of these walls know that Madawi, in addition to being a visiting professor at the Middle East Center here at the LSE, is the author of several books on Saudi Arabia, including Contesting the Saudi State, Islamic Voices from a New Generation, A History of Saudi Arabia, A Most Masculine State, gender, politics, and religion in Saudi Arabia, and most recently, muted modernists, the struggle over divine politics in Saudi Arabia. <clears throat> Eskandar Sadegi Burujerdi is British Academy postdoctoral fellow in the Department of History at the University of Manchester. He's, the, he's an associate editor of the British Journal of Middle Eastern Studies and a series co-editor, that's right, I should say, uh, until recently was an editor at the British Journal. It is actually here. He's in the is that right? Yeah. Very nice. Um, but Eskandar is currently a series co-editor of Radical Histories of the Middle East, published by One World Publications. He is the author of Political Theology in Post-Revolutionary Iran, Disenchantment, Reform, and the Death of Utopia, forthcoming. Toby Matiasin is Senior Research Fellow in the International Relations of the Middle East at St. Anthony's College, University of Oxford. Previously, he was Research Fellow in Islamic and Middle Eastern Studies at Pembroke College, University of Cambridge. He is the author of Sectarian Gulf, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, 
and the Arab Spring that wasn't, and the other Saudis, Shiism, dissent, and sectarianism. And finally, my colleague Nader Hashemi is director of the Center for Middle East Studies at the University of Denver's Joseph Corbell School of International Studies. He is the author of Islam, Secularism and Liberal Democracy Toward a Democratic Theory for Muslim Societies, and the co-editor of three books, The People Reloaded, The Green Movement and the Struggle for Iran's Future, The Syria Dilemma, and the book we're here to discuss this evening, Sectarianization, Mapping the New Politics of the Middle East. Now before, and by the way, each speaker will have approximately 10 minutes, up to 10 minutes, and then we will move to discussion. So sharpen your intellectual knives, get ready for the Q&A session. We expect robust and spirited questions. That's actually why we came here, really, was to hear your thoughts, your feedback, and to mix it up. So uh, we, look very, we very much look forward to the Q&A session. And we want to thank, once again, the LSE Middle East Center for sponsoring and hosting this discussion this evening. Um, now, I don't know what the tradition is here in the UK. In America, we have popcorn when we watch a movie. I'm sorry that we can't provide any snacks, but we are going to give you a very brief filmic overview of the book. Less than two minutes, but buckle in and have a look. Apologies to Eskandar that his name didn't make it into that final cut. It's just, your, your name is just a little too long, Eskandar. The next edited one. <laughs> exactly, for the next video. Okay, if we can get the lights back on. Thank you. Nodder. Well, thank you all for coming, and thank you for the Middle East uh, Center here for um, uh, organizing this event. It's a huge honor to be here with three of our contributors. Major world leaders, public intellectuals, policy analysts, and media commentators have sought to explain the current turmoil in the Middle East as a function of ancient blood feuds rooted in primordial hatreds and antagonisms between Sunnis and Shia. These conflicts, we are told, have been brewing beneath the surface since the dawn of Islam. But authoritarian strongmen had managed to keep a lid on these enduring rivalries, but with the unraveling of their control as a, as a result of the Arab Spring uprisings, this perennial feature of Muslim societies rooted in unyielding intolerance has surfaced to the top, producing the current chaos and turmoil that is afflicting the region. Now, of course, one of the most prominent proponents of this view is none other than the former U.S. President Barack Obama, who I'm very reluctant to criticize in the era of Trump, but I think he deserves to be quoted because he's relevant to this debate. On several occasions, President Obama has spoken of, quote, ancient sectarian differences as a means of explaining the turmoil in the Middle East. These ancient divisions, he asserts, propel the instability in the Arab world, which are rooted in, quote, conflicts that date back millennia. Other prominent American politicians, both on the left and the right, um, media commentators, both on the left and the right, have advanced various uh, versions of this thesis. And none other than New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman asserts that, quote, the main issue in Yemen today is the seventh century struggle over who is the rightful heir to the Prophet Muhammad. You can find variations of this thesis among uh, some academics as well. 
Now, do these observations and do these claims help us understand sectarian conflict in the Middle East today? The problem with the ancient sectarian hatred thesis is that it assumes, it assumes something constant about religion and culture and its propensity to, propose, to, to produce violence while failing to explain the stark variation of civil conflict over time. In other words, it fails to answer the why now question. Why has sectarian conflict in the Middle East increased at this particular time in history and not before? Our book forcibly, forcibly, forcefully challenges the lazy and orientalist reliance on sectarianism as a catch-all explanation for the ills afflicting the Middle East. We propose the term instead sectarianization, an active process shaped by political actors operating within specific contexts, pursuing political goals that involve the mobilization of popular sentiments around particular identity markers. Class dynamics, fragile states, and geopolitical rival rivalries also shape the sectarianization process. The usual term sectarianism is typically devoid of such reference points. It tends to imply a static, trans-historical, enduring force that is allegedly an immutable and enduring characteristic of the Arab Islamic world from the 7th century until today. The theme of political authoritarianism is central to the sectarianization thesis. This form of political rule has long dominated the politics of the Middle East, and its corrosive legacy has deeply sullied the polities and societies of the region. Authoritarianism, not theology, is the critical factor in the sectarianization process. Authoritarian regimes in the Middle East have deliberately manipulated sectarian divisions and identities in various ways as a strategy of deflecting demands for political change and perpetuating their power. This anti-democratic political context is essential for understanding sectarian conflict in Muslim societies today, especially in those societies that contain a mix of Sunni and Shia populations. To paraphrase from the famous aphorism from the Prussian general von Clausewitz about war being the continuation of politics by other means, in our reading, sectarian conflict in the Middle East today is primarily about the perpetuation of political rule via identity mobilization. Now, to make better sense of the politics of sectarianism, we rely on the literature on ethno-religious mobilization. And in the social sciences, there's primarily three schools of thought that seek to explain this phenomenon, uh, primordialism, instrumentalism, and constructivism. We rely on a constructivist approach, particularly um, um, the, the, the belief and the um, concept that constructivists have where they believe that ethnicity and religion are not inherently conflictual, but rather that conflict flows from pathological social systems and political opportunity structures that breed conflict from multiple social cleavages that are beyond the control of a single individual. With this framework as a backdrop, sectarianism in the Middle East today becomes a little bit more intelligible. Sectarian identities cannot be mobilized unless, di unless differences in beliefs and historical memory compelled religious groups into collective action around particularist identities. Therefore, two critical, question, two critical questions emerge. Why are these conflicts intensifying now, and why in this particular region of the world? In other words, what explains the flaring of sectarian conflict at specific moments in time in some places rather than others? Sunni-Shia relations for example, were not always conflict-ridden, nor was sectarianism a strong political force in modern Muslim politics until recently. How did this change 
Why did, why did this change? What are the key factors that are driving sectarianization? The level of intensity of sectarian conflict varies geographically where Sunni and Shia populations coexist. What explains this variation? While the role of religious leaders and political entrepreneurs is particularly salient in answering these questions, Vali Nas, in his contribution to our volume, suggests that we must, we must examine the agency of state actors in identity mobilization. In the past, theories of ethno-religious conflict have generally treated the state as a passive actor in identity mobilization. The standard narrative held that competition from within society among contending groups would inevitably shift to the arena of the state as these sub-state actors would vie for control of various state institutions as a means of enhancing their power over rival groups. The intensification of these struggles will eventually lead to the weakness, collapse, and failure of the state. But drawing upon research from South Asia and Southeast Asia, Nas has suggested, however, that far from being a passive victim of identity mobilization, states have a logic of their own and can be directly instrumental in manipulating the protagonists and entrenching identity cleavages. Identity mobilization here is rooted in the project of power acquisition by state actors, not necessarily the behavior of societal elites or community actors. These state actors do not champion the cause of any one community, but see political gain in the conflict between competing identities. Nas's insight, I think, deepens our theoretical understanding of identity mobilization in that it pushes the conversation beyond primordial differences and manipulation by religious authorities to focus attention on state behavior and on state society relations. So in conclusion, the key claim of the book, the key sort of theme that brings the chapters all together, is that sectarianization or sectarianism fails to explain the current disorder in the Middle East. This widely held view, based on alleged enduring Sunni-Shia differences, clouds rather than illuminates the complex realities of the politics of the region, which are better understood in a series of developmental crises, both economic and political, that the region has been facing since World War II. The policies of leading Western liberal democracies toward the Middle East have only exacerbated these problems. While it is true that religious identities are more salient in the politics of the Middle East today than before, it's also true that these identities have been deliberately politicized by state actors in pursuit of political gain. The politics of authoritarian regimes is the key context for understanding this problem. In other words, there is a symbiotic relationship between pressure from below in society, demanding greater inclusion, respect and representation versus the refusal by ruling elites from above to share or relinquish power. This produces a crisis of legitimacy that needs to be carefully managed. The politics of sectarianism or sectarianization, the deliberate manip manipulation of religious identities, is a result of this political dynamic. Notwithstanding the rhetoric we hear from Sunni monarchies in the Middle East, most recently from the Saudi defense minister and his comments about Iran, ruling elites are not necessarily embedded to a particular sectarian identity. The driving force of politics is not the defense of theological doctrine or loyalty to the collective interests of a religious sect. The core allegiance for ruling elites is to their political thrones and their various clients, whether Sunni or Shia, who can help sustain their power. As Madawi al-Rashid writes in our volume, sectarianism is not an inherent historical quality of the Arab masses. 
There are sectarian entrepreneurs and religious scholars who continue to flourish in the present by manipulating these identities in the interest of ruling regimes and often at their request. Sectarianism, in other words, is a modern political phenomenon that is nourished by authoritarian regimes whose rule depends on invoking these um, old religious identities that become lethally politicized. In short, sectarianism does not explain the current turmoil and chaos in the Middle East, but dictatorship does. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Uh, well, I'd like to welcome Nader and uh, uh, Danny um, on behalf of the Middle East Center and also thank them for including me in their uh, amazing book. Um, as uh, Nader uh, explains, um, this project um, had a, a sort of um, initial um, message, and I think he clearly and eloquently um, uh, told you about the, uh, the main theme in this project. And my chapter um, it takes this kind of approach uh, whereby I consider sectarianization or sectarianism, now we're moving towards using the first term, uh, it is basically the politicization of religious difference. The Middle East was actually lucky uh, to have that religious mosaic that had been maintained for centuries. It is one of the most unique regions in the world where we have communities that do not exist elsewhere. And unfortunately, quite a lot of people in the West came to know about these communities when they are massacred today or when they are prosecuted. But the Middle East is unique in the sense that uh, uh, several religious traditions from Judaism, Christianity, Islam, the Yazidis, the Druze, Ismailis, you name them, they're all there. And there is a reason why those communities had survived, survived uh, throughout these centuries. They have survived not because people were killing each other, um, but they survived because there was kind of coexistence that people had. I want to um, put a, a sort of a warning here. Uh, neither me nor uh, my colleagues uh, have this nostalgia about a past when we all loved each other. We intermarried. And uh, you, you begin to hear this kind of uh, conversations when people talk about violence. Uh, I was trained as a, a, both a historian and a social scientist, so I do have some kind of awareness about the history of the region when people did kill each other, when people did throw each other in rivers, when people massacred each other, and violence erupted between communities. So we are not oblivious to that history. But as social scientists, I'm also under the sort of uh, spell of the tools of my profession. I'd like to think about those historical moment with a social scientific perspective. That is, look at the context in which that history of violence or history of peaceful coexistence uh, was maintained or upset and who was doing the upsetting. So my chapter uh, basically looks at the Saudi case and in a way, I, I argue that the sectarianism that we witness in Saudi Arabia is a function of authoritarian rule. And uh, I make the, the point that both uh, presidential and monarchical leaders of the Arab world are clans. 
we always talk about the depo deposing that president or that king, but they are actually clans, and these clans are preoccupied with their own survival rather than their sec own sectarian identity, let alone the sectarian identity of their own subjects. So, in, as far as they are concerned, they really worship their own clan rather than their own religion or sect or sacred uh, figures. So the, both Sunni and Shia rulers, um, um, we find that they have this sort of preoccupation with their own survival. And as political actors do, they try to find strategies that help them survive, they, that help them uh, keep the population under control, that divides the population when they want them to be divided. So they are, they are driven by the survival instinct rather than their sec the sectarian identity. So in Saudi Arabia, we always hear um, probably more so about the hate preachers or the Wahhabis. And we try to think here in the West that everything about Saudi Arabia can be explained by invoking the hate preachers or the Wahhabi clerics. They explain everything for some simple minds that we come across. And even inside Saudi Arabia, there is a group of people who do believe that if we blame it on the Wahhabis, then they could explain everything about the st state formation. If women don't drive, it's because of the Wahhabi. If Sunnis and Shia don't eat eat each other's meat, that is meat slaughtered by the Shia, then it is the Wahhabis. If, for example, there are fatwas that, that prohibit a Sunni from marrying a Shia, it's because of the Wahhabis. I don't want to uh, absolve the Wahhabis from any responsibility, but I want to make sure that uh, uh, to understand their role and the instrumentalization of Wahhabism as much as the instrumentalization of sectarian identities are projects of the state. State. They are state projects that help the Al Saud ruling family to rule over a fragmented population. And this is exactly what they want because any kind of politics that cross or cut across sectarian divides uh, and many other divides uh, produces or threaten to produce national politics. And national politics is the threat to the regime. It's not like the Iranian threat or the uh, uh, um, uh, suicide bombs or terrorism. It is that national politics that most regimes in the region, including Saudi Arabia, fears most. Because national politics creates solidarities across sects, across regions, across tribal groups, even across classes. Um, and therefore, they do their best to create this kind of division. So let me look at just the relationship between the Saudi uh, regime and the Shia. Um, there is also a narrative that the Shia in Saudi Arabia are always oppressed. They're discriminated against, they're marginalized, they're not allowed to worship, they don't have their own cemeteries, etc. So this kind of discourse does not actually uh, stand the, uh, 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 the test over time. As a regime, it is bound to deal with the Shia in different ways at different historical moments. So there are strategies that allow the regime to repress the Shia when they want to, but also there are other strategies. So we talk about repression, discrimination, marginalization, co-optation, and cooperation. So it is not just one pattern. Uh, the regime 
uh, oscillates between those depending on what it needs and how certain strategy would help the regime achieve its goals or objectives. So this, this consortium of strategies, what I call them strategies to uh, that end in unifying the Shia as a sectarian group and other strategies that the regime uses to divide the Shia as a sectarian group. So strategies to unify in addition to strategies to divide. Let me look at repression. Repression, discrimination, marginalization, everything that comes under repression enhances group solidarity, enhances the Shia feeling of suffering, victimhood and marginalization, and therefore it enhances their internal cohesion. And as a result, this masks internal divisions within the Shia community. It masks internal uh, different interest groups within the Shia community. Uh, and in a way, um, even enhances their sense of belonging to one group. And this is a result of repression. And you have the symbolism of repression, the martyrdom, and the Shia produce that kind of literature and symbolic worldview that they are a minor persecuted minority. But at the same time, there are other strategies that the regime uses in order to divide the Shia. So promoting one group against the other, talking about Shia notables, the uqala Shia, the uh, uh, sages of the Shia, the ones who are uh, not driven by sectarian identity. In fact, they are driven by wataniya, by citizenship, or by belonging to the Saudi nation. So these are multiple strategies that we need to look at in order to understand this complex relationship and complex strategies that regimes use uh, in, order, in, in their dealing with a minority, if they happen to have a minority. Now, what happened during the Arab uprising, 2010-2011? Basically, the regime felt that it needed to reinvigorate sectarianism, promote it as a, a, as a new, uh, and give it more life to be salient, to become important in the lives of its population. And most of it is not simply directed against the Shia, but it's also directed uh, towards its Sunni audiences. Remember, the Sunnis are, are the majority in that country. So basically, the regime wanted to, uh, the Sunni majority to renew its allegiance to the regime at a time when the Arab masses were engaged in serious contestation across the region, from Morocco all the way to um, 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 to uh, Oman. So, um, and again, also, the second reason why this sectarianization was promoted and reinvigorated is to terrorize the Shia themselves, since they were the first ones who started the demonstrations in their region. So they wanted to create fear in the Shia and allowed certain religious scholars to voice anti-Shia uh, fatwas and opinions. And then came ISIS, the Islamic State, with all the terrorism crisis that uh, happened. Saudi Arabia had so far more than uh, uh, 18 attacks. Um, not all of them uh, are against the Shia, but the most deadly ones were in Shia areas and in Shia mosques. And these uh, w were extremely important because the Shia themselves thought that, well, we have ISIS. The regime, as a result, moved from being the prosecutor or constructed by the Shia as the prosecutor, the oppressor of the Shia, 
to becoming the protector of the Shia. Because if you're a Shia in the eastern province, you would think, well, the alternative to the regime or challenging the regime is ISIS. Oh, well, no, let's just calm down and stop our mobilization. So it was a great strategy uh, in order to absorb the, the wave of protest that had taken place. So um, what happened among the, uh, the Sunni, I mean, we call them the Sunni, but they are the majority of Saudi Arabia. Uh, there are different uh, groups that can be uh, monitored, and I did monitor them at the time, and I talk about them in the chapter. So um, the, what happened among, for example, the Islamists? Uh, they have reservations on the Saudi regime, and they became invigorated themselves as a result of the uh, Muslim Brotherhood winning elections in, in Egypt, for example, and in Tunisia. So these, what we call the Sahwis, um, they are sort of independent, dependent uh, on the state. Um, they felt that they could voice um, anti-Shia rhetoric and discourse, and they were given the, the platforms to do that. Uh, but again, we have other categories in Saudi Arabia. What about the Saudis who write in newspapers, such as sort of the liberal constituency? And I, I stress that this is a specific type of liberal Saudis. We don't have time to talk about. But let's call them, for the sake of this uh, short presentation, liberal Saudis. Uh, they had an opportunity there to s score goals with the uh, Islamists. Dan is telling me to stop now. <laughs> okay, sorry, one more minute. So they, they were, um, uh, they thought that they could actually, this is their opportunity to denounce those sectarian hate preachers from both sides and win the battle against Islamists. Uh, so Saudis in general were subjected to this sort of contradictory discourses at the time. So they were the clerics who were saying, all oh, those Shia, they are fifth column, um, you know, um, uh, fighting on behalf of Iran to undermine our security. Other parts of the Saudi official discourse in the Saudi press was saying that, well, no, we have to focus on Wataniya. It's all the fault of the Wahhabis. So the, the issue of sectarianism was actually uh, used and abused, uh, and it was done under the guise of the authoritarian regime. So let me just conclude, because I have no time anymore. Um, I think uh, sectarianism is not an historical, inevitable characteristic of the Middle East or the Arab world. It is produced, reproduced, and also can be undone. So let's end it on a hopeful note and think that in the in the future, many people will actually realize that we are not naturally sectarian. And I hope I can see this book translated into Arabic so that um, you know, the message gets across that we are not just simply uh, prisoners of our primordial identities. Thank you very much. If you'd like, yeah. This one is. Hello, everybody. Thank you very much for uh, coming. And I know it's exam season, so I'm sure there's lots of demands and deadlines and things due. But thank you very much for making the time. Um, 
So I'm going to be really very schematic. So you'll have to you have to come out in the Q&A if you really think I kind of skirt over something. So when I first was asked to write this, um, what struck me is that sort of one of the chief lenses for understanding Iranian foreign policy is often the idea that Iran is um, an ideological state, a revolutionary state, um, a state that sort of implacably sort of hell-bent on subverting the liberal international order. Um, and more recent, and this has obviously been the case since um, the onset of the, the inception of the revolution. This has often been a frame in which it's been understood. Um, more recently, obviously because of events in the region, this has taken on now a sectarian valence, and often Iran is sort of portrayed as a sort of a hegemonic power, Shi'i, Persian, very much again intent on incorporating uh, much of the region in, you know, under its umbrella, as it were. Uh, the problem with this sort of way of framing it, as far as I kind of gathered, was that um, obviously it's ahistorical, it's extremely simplistic, it completely ignores the, topo the topography of the Iranian state, how various institutions came into being, how they interact, how policy is formulated, um, how consensus is reached. So I initially sort of, and not just that actually, but the fact that sort of issues of national interest and security are something which are fluid and constantly being contested within the Iranian state itself. So that was um, sort of to start off um, what I sort of tried to, in a sense, complicate that prevalent and I think obviously quite pernicious way of understanding um, any state because obviously it turns into an exceptional sort of case study and therefore often it needs ex extraordinary measures to be dealt with. Um, but so I tried to look at two levels of analysis. So on the first level, it was sort of the system level with the sort of and uh, system level dynamics of securitization. So um, I looked at Iran as a middle regional power, meaning that it's a key player in the regional system. It's able to resist adversarial coalitions of states against it, and it can also vie for leadership and hegemony within the wider region. Similarly, um, but to add to that, um, the region is overdetermined by um, great power rivalry, um, so it's a highly penetrated regional system, and this is obviously, as I'm sure you all know, because of its geostrategic location, concentrations of energy, transnational capital flows, um, and the Israeli state and its security. Um, and this is sort of very immediately manifest um, through, obviously, the U.S. Uh, maritime presence in the region, the Persian Gulf, um, and also the influx of huge amounts of weaponry to Iranian adversaries, as also UAE, Saudi, Israel. And so what strikes you is when you look at sort of um, the conventional military capabilities of Iran vis-a-vis -vis its neighbors, you see sort of the, its, its military expenditure is dwarfed by comparison. So um, there's a famous, there's a very uh, competent study that was done where it sort of show, estimated that Iran's sort of conventional military expenditure is about 12 to 14 billion, with respect, whereas Saudi Arabia is about 80, and this is 2014 though, and UAE at 22.7. So in terms of conventional military deterrence, there is a huge um, asymmetry. And obviously, uh, since the revolution, Iran has faced an arms embargo, sanctions, Clinton-era policy of dual containment, and obviously later the Bush administration's uh, policy of regime change. Um, so basically, Iran has formulated, historically speaking, and this is obviously linked to the Iranian state's um, formation, um, which I will touch on very, very briefly, um, various, what Stephen Walk calls, strategies of opposition. Um, and this, again, is seen um, through the Iranian state in cases where we see sort of diminished state capacity and autonomy, um, 
Iran's sort of resort to cultivating politically responsive um, armed and political groups. Um, and this, in this way, increases its strategic depth. So, and this is obviously to, in virtue of the asymmetry of power within the region, it does this obviously to keep instability and threats without extraneous to its um, borders. And as I said, this is very much linked to the Iranian state's um, historical formation. Um, so the conventional military was obviously, uh, there's a lot of skepticism towards it by the new revolutionary uh, state. Um, the army was massively purged because um, it was you know, feared that it was possibly a source of a coup d'etat. Um, and in its stead, in sort of concert with a broader social revolution, we see mobilization for the Iran-Iraq war, we see the formation of the Basij, we see the formation of the Revolutionary Guards, which is then later subsequently regularized and turned into a uh, very much integrated into security architecture of the Iranian state. So at the system level, I also try to sort of look at how this dovetails with dynamics on um, in the various countries where Iran is said to have significant influence and also what they call the MESO level, so looking at the organizations which, were, which are operating in civil conflicts. Um, um, and, where, and so basically the conditions under which Iran can exercise what, I've, what is referred to as strategic death, and, I, and I, I'm not using this term willy-nilly, it's actually something which is, very much appears in official literature, and I quote at the outset of my chapter, um, a nice quote from Ayatollah Khamenei where he sort of talks about various different resources which can be mobilized in terms of those strategic threats. So that can be language, that can be religion, that can be more sectarian, it can also be political. Um, so there's various different, as it were, cards to play. But the conditions under which um, the Iranian state can uh, exercise um, this strategic depth is very much where we see, I think, what was previously referred to by Nader, which was sort of, again, a weak state, weak or with lacking in autonomy and also capacity and also a situation where we see emerging anarchy. Namely, we see this politicization of ascriptive group identities by political entrepreneurs, uh, violent specialists in the words of, sort of Charles Tilly, um, who basically within their communities respond to various security dilemmas as experienced by members of their confessional communities. And they often craft narratives, you know, us them narratives, they are very effective and emotive. Um, so there is a confluence, in, as it were, between actors within the various states uh, which are, are in a situation of emerging anarchy and obviously at times the Iranian state. And in the case of Iraq, this obviously came about through the invasion of Iraq, the occupation of Iraq, the effective liquidation of the uh, Iraqi state and the overhaul of the erstwhile uh, Iraqi um, elite. Um, and in the case of Syria, obviously, we had a civil uprising with the Arab uprisings, which was then violently uh, repressed by the Ba'athist state. Um, uh, and then, in turn, we see a civil conflict which is progressively militarized and turned into a geopolitical uh, conflict. And basically, what I, when thinking about it, um, in the discussion, it just seemed to be like it was very impoverished. So we often hear about proxy wars, um, which is fine. But the thing is, it often has, it's a very sort of homogenous, um, how can I say, almost monotonal understanding of patron-client um, relationships. So what I tried to think about was, we have to look at, obviously, very much at the concrete case studies and therefore a typology of militias and obviously uh, or armed groups and very much look at these as political forms of, you know, contentious 
politics often. Um, because when you talk about proxies, it's often completely depoliticized and decontextualized. So what I was saying is that you often need, you need to look at the, and the, obviously the level of influence that Iran can exercise is very much determined by a whole host of factors. So you know, there's the social base and there's composition, regional sort of, uh, you have to look at specific regions, you have to look at the fiscal base of the group in question, and you also have to look at its ideological uh, complexion. So I was just simply trying to complicate um, the extant picture, which you often will see in the press, but you also often see in sort of policy discussions and various other venues. So very briefly, um, I compared two... Yeah, I'm fine, actually. I'm quite surprised. Um, uh, so I basically looked at two um, sectarian mobilizations under conditions of state crises. So one was the popular mobilization units in Iraq, um, that emerged in response to Grand Ayatollah Sistani's fatwa, which subsequently this group obviously later received legal recognition. It is funded uh, by the state to a large extent. Um, and obviously over, we see the overwhelming sort of mobilization of the Shia Ithna Ashari uh, community in response to the seizure of Mosul by Daesh. Um, and this is obviously perceived as an existential threat, obviously, to Baghdad, to the Iraqi polity and whatnot. Um, and the question with the Hasht is that um, it's a very, like I said, it emerged out of this domestic security uh, dilemma, but it's also composed of a broad range of social forces. So there's the tribes, there's the shrine administrators, there's the ulama, the marja'iyya, like the senior clergymen, um, and, the, and local neighbors. All of these things attenuate and influence um, the degree to which Iran is able to obviously um, exert influence. That being said, there is nevertheless obviously an organic relationship with one of the most powerful groups in that sort of uh, matrix, which is obviously the Badr organization, which obviously ties with Iran, goes back to the Iranian revolution. Um, and obviously they are better armed, better trained, and therefore often able to exercise disproportionate um, influence. But that being said, I always think it does need to be uh, count, like considered that there is always this domestic kind of pressure to be attentive to domestic demands and obviously distance yourself so you're not perceived to be um, simply a cat's paw of an, of an outside power. And this is obviously, also, in terms of recent events, this is very much a vacuum which Mokhtar al-Sadr has tried to fill by appealing you know, to Iraqi nationalism, putting his hand up towards a um, Sunni community in Iraq. And, on the other, and the other case which I looked at, so to compare these two mobilizations, as it were, was the obviously Syrian National Defense Force, which was born of necessity in 2012 in response to the defections from the Syrian um, army. And um, what we see there is it's a very different kind of um, role for Iran. So there we see uh, very much two states, allies, both you know, authoritarian in many respects, uh, authoritarian states, actually. Um, and uh, we see a knowledge transfer in terms of um, equipment, uh, arms, training, um, advice on, on how to conduct operations. And it's a very almost transactional um, sort of um, act, as it were, to regularize many of the local militias which were invested in the Assad regime's survival. But supplemented, supplementing that is a larger transnational sort of mobilization of um, Shia uh, militants. So. Uh, and obviously tied, and they're called the defenders of the Haram of Sayyid Zainab, um, uh, the sister of Imam Hussein. Um, and what we see in this situation is a very sort of uh, complex and uh, 
as a quandary, as it were, for the Iranian state, because on the one hand, it, it doesn't want to appear to be uh, simply in Syria for its own real politique sort of self-aggrandizement. So it's had to evoke very much a sectarian explanation for its presence in Syria. So it's had to say, oh, we're there, to obviously just to define the shrine. But obviously, um, they're not just at the shrine. They're also you know, very much active in places like Aleppo and whatnot. So um, they've tried to sort of geographically limit uh, their role in Syria in their rhetoric, as it were. But it hasn't been very convincing. And obviously, um, the driving force, I think most will admit, is very much a question of real politique and very much a matter of uh, bulwarking not only the Assad regime, which is Iran's far last um, Arab ally in the region, but also Hezbollah's supply lines, which are absolutely key to, for it to basically continue its deterrent capability with respect to um, Israel. Um, that being said, um, even if these things do emerge out of security dilemmas, what we see, unfortunately, is a sort of a form of path dependency where um, when you mobilize a script of identities and people are, become effectively invested in a sectarian mobilization, it very much takes on a life of its own and might, might often might become a self-fulfilling prophecy. So that's one of the dangers. Um, and I'm done, just Thank about. You. <laughs> Thank you very Thank much, you. So uh, thank you everyone for coming and um, you've heard this several times today but um, I want to reiterate this point this is an incredibly good book <laughs> and it probably will stand the test of time unlike loads of publications on this topic because I think it uh, brings this really into the political science, uh, you know, debate, and it um, changes, you know, the broad talk about Sunni Shia to one that is, as Nader has said, it's about active processes where actual people and institutions instrumentalize, you know, certain sets of identity um, or religious beliefs. Now, that doesn't mean that history doesn't matter um, at all. Uh, I'm personally trying to write a 500-page book, uh, book on the topic, uh, which includes a lot of the historical narratives. But still, I mean, I think basically they got it right um, in the sense that um, we're talking about a situation where states and other forms of other actors, mainly identity entrepreneurs, so they could also be non-state actors or, um, you know, business leaders or other community leaders have instrumentalized um, these identities, particularly since 1979. So what my chapter does is really just talk about a very small country um, in comparison to, to some of the other countries that have been talked about, but one that kind of sits at the crossroads of different, uh, well, geopolitical rivalries um, and, and that has been well discussed in the media a lot as a, as a hotspot of the Sunni-Shia um, rivalry, and that is the island of Bahrain, um, formerly British uh, protectorate. And um, uh, I, in the paper, I've used the securitization theory, which I think partly also inspired the book as a whole, which is an approach in critical security studies. Um, you know, I know this sounds perhaps very odd, um, but it is, uh, I think, an increasingly uh, important and valuable strand of, of scholarship that looks at um, security not just in, you know, hard politics terms, counting, you know, tanks and, 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 and policemen and, and army, uh, uh, you know, uh, and such things, but looks more at, um, well, a, a constructivist, um, takes a more constructivist approach to these issues and, um, 
I think particularly, well, in our current era, uh, this is something that becomes increasingly relevant, not just in the Middle East, um, where it is, you know, very uh, important, but also in Europe and um, the United States. In fact, um, if you read my chapter and, um, uh, well, replace Bahrain with a lot of other countries, well, not just in the Middle East, but increasingly elsewhere, you would actually find that a lot of these things uh, have been happening, um, including in this country um, uh, lately, because what critical security theory and, and uh, securitization theory kind of, uh, focus on our speech acts by politicians that turn an issue or uh, a group of people or a set of ideas from something that per se, well, is just, you know, something else, um, is just another thing, into something that potentially poses a threat. So this often happens in, I mean, international relations, obviously, in relation to another state. That, I mean, that state may actually present a, a threat in real terms, in the sense uh, of, of hard military um, uh, uh, capabilities, but it is only when domestically, I mean, politicians try to turn that state and whoever, you know, whatever population um, relates to that state in a special way, perhaps through language, um, ethnicity, uh, or religion, into um, a threat to the nation and a threat to the state domestically, that this becomes um, a, a really big issue and where then, you know, processes and logics start to play out, whereas people start to be um, uh, put in a corner and uh, described as the internal other um, that is dangerous. And in, in those groups, you then often have a process of radicalization that perhaps was not there um, in the first place. And in fact, I, I read through the book um, uh, you know, before this evening, and uh, it discusses really a, a lot of countries in depth. And I think, uh, for example, also in the Syrian crisis, I mean, as much as in Bahrain, um, there were so many self-fulfilling prophecies kind of built into a lot of the narratives, um, whereas, you know, now, uh, 2017, a lot of these conflicts actually um, have broken down into broadly sectarian lines, and it will be very difficult to kind of disentangle them from these broader, you know, from the kind of sectarian fault lines. But in 2011, um, a lot of these protests were actually not really about that. I mean, there were elements in the different opposition movements that were pushing for a more kind of community, communal, and, and sectarian-based kind of mobilization, but you had, you know, large groups of people that were, in fact, inspired by uh, uh, the need to overcome sectarian differences or other kind of differences, uh, and, and that's why they went out into the streets. And um, as has been shown in the book, different regimes, top-down, kind of used processes of sectarianization to divide and rule. Um, so it is... If you see what I mean, today we are in a, in, a, in a situation where the sectarianization process has led us to where we are. But whether in the beginning um, these things were about that, so whether Syrians, uh, uh, Syrian protesters want to somehow kill all the Alawites, or whether um, uh, Shia, Shia protesters in Bahrain, and in fact most of the people who went out in Bahrain uh, were Shia, whether they somehow wanted to uh, get rid of uh, the Al-Khalifa and all the Sunnis, um, these questions are actually not asked anymore. We're just um, uh, focusing on, on what happened later on, and I think that's where you know, this, this kind of uh, securitization approach can be quite um, helpful. So in the case of Bahrain, um, uh, I'll, I'll give you a brief overview of the history to, 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 to make you a bit aware 
aware of some of the issues. Um, uh, the island was mainly inhabited by what was called uh, the Baharna, um, uh, which called themselves natives or you know, authentic inhabitants of the island, in itself a bit of a problematic term, but they used that uh, uh, in, in opposing themselves and their own uh, view of, of, of history um, towards uh, uh, when in the late 18th century the Al-Khalifa tribe and, uh, uh, and its tribal allies conquered the island and started to settle there and established their rule over the island. Uh, previously it had also part, at, at times been a, a province of the Persian Empire um, and Shiism in its different forms had been established there for centuries. So you had a, a network of uh, mosques and local scholars. So some of the important kind of Shia clerics of, of the Middle Ages came from Bahrain. Um, so you had a kind of established um, set of religious practices and institutions. Um, and with the conquest by the Al-Khalifa, basically the population of the island were turned into more or less um, serfs, slaves, for, for the um, newly established uh, uh, tribal rulers who were allocated different plots um, of the island and, and ruled this in a more or less feudal um, fashion. In the 19th century, Bahrain was integrated into the British Empire as a protectorate uh, in, in which its foreign relations were uh, um, delegated to Britain and domestically the, the Al-Khalifa family was um, supposedly allowed to rule um, on its own. But the story of Bahrain there, for example, um, turns us to you know, the, the legacy of, of foreign intervention in the sectarianization of the Middle East. So the, the legacy of British imperial rule and French imperial rule in the Levant uh, especially is incredibly important because without these alliances with the British Empire, um, it's not clear whether um, a lot of the Gulf rulers and other rulers would have survived um, for so long and whether they would have uh, adopted similar strategies um, uh, of, well, of, of governing. Um, but the sectarianization of the Shia um, uh, as, as the other in Bahrain um, happened to a certain extent at the outset, um, uh, uh, at the conquest, but really only after 1979. And um, what is striking is that during the um, um, uh, almost 200 years or 160 years of British imperial rule, um, the Gulf region was a kind of British lake uh, uh, and a lot of the Brit uh, Persian port cities uh, were integrated into these kind of British controlled um, trade networks. So you had a lot of migration of people from one side to the other. Um, there were no national boundaries uh, and trading families often sent sons you know, to the different ports to establish bases there and you know, over the decades and centuries uh, people settled in those places. This might remind you of another um, empire that's now being uh, abolished, um, the European Union, right? I mean people came here uh, before the borders were um, uh, officially um, uh, re-established uh, in a very certain way and the European Union was accused of interfering in the elections and Europeans uh, were not allowed to uh, give a, a, a advice on Brexit negotiations and uh, some such things. So, um, but in the case of uh, some uh, Persians who settled in Bahrain um, and uh, they I mean, a significant amount of, of Persians did in fact settle in Bahrain and uh, on the uh, other side of the coast um, uh, over the, the, the centuries. 
Um, uh, they, they did that, uh, in fact, because it was part of their trading networks. And it was only in, in, uh, when, when the British Empire finally withdrew from the Gulf um, uh, and uh, Bahrain became independent in 1971 that a new form of Bahraini nationalism um, had to be created. Uh, in fact, um, the, the British diplomats who were administering this um, uh, uh, Bahraini independence were worried that Bahrain might not even be admitted to the uh, United Nations because, uh, because of its close association with Britain in the sense that other member states would not accept it as a, as a you know, separate member. Um, uh, so there was a you know, very clear sense uh, whereby this problem of othering really started um, uh, afterwards. And in, in the earlier previous period, so in the pre-1979 period, uh, Persians um, were actually used uh, uh, as a counter, you know, counterforce against what were the the, the main kind of challengers to the ruling families in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And these were uh, the leftist movements uh, in the Gulf states and uh, different forms of Arab nationalism that were challenging the monarchical order. So you had uh, uh, cases whereby in Kuwait, for example, or in Bahrain, Persians were actually seen as loyal to the rulers um, uh, or more loyal than, um, than some of their you know, what are nowadays referred to um, as citizens. And it is really only with the uh, Re Iranian Revolution in 1979 that both Persians and Arab Shia um, were turned into kind of um, uh, uh, this, this fifth column um, that, um, you know, over the last 35 years, really a lot of kind of this uh, discourse and talk um, has been uh, focused on. This is not just the case in Bahrain, but as Madawi has mentioned, also in Saudi Arabia, although as in uh, Saudi Arabia, in Bahrain, again, um, regimes have never adopted a, 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 a clear-cut strategy of only marginalizing one group um, uh, or only preferring um, one group. So there are always kind of um, divide and rule strategies within certain um, communities um, uh, as, as well. And um, I have to uh, come to a conclusion now. Um, just uh, the talk was supposed to give you a bit of a sense that, well, the Middle East is not that different from our world um, uh, anymore necessarily, and that um, actors, uh, uh, states, uh, political elites do play uh, a really important role in uh, fostering um, these divide and rule strategies, particularly when we come um, to the Sunni-Shia divide. So thank you very much. Thank you very much to all of our speakers for um, this robust range of perspectives. Um, I think you'll agree that there's lots of food for thought here, and I have no doubt that there, is, there are plenty of questions. Let me just say at the outset that um, the floor is now open. You should ask one question only, though, in the interest of time, um, because we have so many people who might answer it. And if you have a specific uh, speaker to whom your question is addressed, please indicate that uh, at the outset. Um, and also, please wait for the microphone to come so that the quality of your question um, can be recorded uh, in the video. All right, great. Who's first? Somebody beat me to it because I have a lot of questions and I would rather hear yours than mine. Okay, very good. Right here. 
I'm curious to hear what you think about what role local movements can play and what impact they can play in circumventing these transnational radical ones that exacerbate sectarianism. So for example, one I have in mind is the reform movement in Saudi Arabia that was formerly led more or less by Nimr al-Nimr, who tried to disassociate himself from Iran to kind of provide legitimacy for the, for the Saudi Shias. Thank you very much. Um, that question, I think it's fair to say, would be best answered by Madawi, although S Toby Matheson is also a scholar of Saudi Arabia. Well, I could um, talk about the uh, reform movement among the uh, what would be called Sunnis, but I think Toby also can talk about Nimr and Nimr specifically. Well, there had been uh, movements um, throughout the second half of the 20th century that cut across sectarian divides. So, for example, in uh, Aramco, where the oil company uh, was established, there was a, a labor movement that, uh, you know, Shia and Sunni did not feature in its discourse. Um, then there was this sort of Arab nationalist movement in which the Shia were very, very active. Um, and it included Sunnis and Shias and others from other parts of Saudi Arabia. Now, these were the threatening movements of the 1950s and 1960s. Then we come to the age with Islamism on both sides after 1979 on, among the Shia and the Sunnis where all these other movements sort of you know, transformed itself. Some people became Islamist, others abandoned the, their project, and some of them became liberal. Um, so uh, uh, more recently, um, I had focused on uh, one particular group. Um, they are known as the Saudi Association of Civil and Political Rights, and I wrote about them in my last book, Muted Modernist. And they tried to um, uh, cross these divides. And uh, they formed a civil and political right association, a, a civil society, and as at the time they were not allowed to function, so the government clapped down on them. And at the moment, all the founders are in prison, serving anything between 10 and 15 years in prison. Um, they took the cause of prisoners among the Shia and the uh, uh, Sunnis, if you want to talk about Sunni and Shia, and also immigrants in Saudi Arabia. So they were not driven by a sectarian agenda, and as a result, they were actually prosecuted by the government. I know of uh, a particular uh, civil society that was uh, addressing women's issues, and it was a Shia uh, uh, organization run by Shia for the Shia in their region. They were allowed to function in Saudi Arabia, but then the moment they crossed the, the sectarian divide and started having women from other regions to campaign with them on the plight of political prisoners in general, and they found some response from other, other members of society who are not part of their Shia community, they immediately were told to shut their NGO. So basically, um, in a way, the sectarian uh, crystallization of sectarian identity, institutions, forums, serves the narrative of the state that those are Shia calling for Shia things. So nobody should actually build bridges with them. And, and this is the important uh, sort of focus uh, Toby, perhaps. Toby, did you want to add anything? Nimr. I just want to add something very quickly. Um, in the Iranian context, these reform movements that you speak 
are operating in oppressive contexts. So when they speak out or try to sort of challenge the regime narrative on these questions, the consequences are severe. So as most people know, there's an election taking place in Iran right now. One of the prominent reformist figures gave a, a talk recently where he just mildly, very mildly criticized Iranian policy in Syria. Very mild criticism. Immediately he was charged with a crime and he's going to be hauled before the courts for violating national security on some bogus charge. So that gives you a sense that uh, the ability to sort of affect any positive change in a highly repressive context when you challenge the regime's red lines, uh, the consequences are severe. So I think it fundamentally limits the ability of these groups to mobilize or do anything significant. Okay. Um, Toby, did you want to add anything to that? Um, well, I mean, Nimr and Nimr uh, certainly did uh, uh, also criticize us famously Assad and uh, uh, Iran, I mean, at times in his talks and, um, well, but um, he was obviously, I mean, he was a cleric um, uh, and he very much came from, I mean, he spent also time in Iran, he came, very much came from a Shia revolutionary kind of background and um, as such, you know, um, he's dead now and I don't want to, you know, um, uh, endorse whatever, you know, killing him, I mean, uh, at all. But he, one, it, it would be difficult to say that he was an uh, integrative figure uh, uh, in Saudi Arabia. Um, uh, or Yes, and the regime has obviously managed quite well um, uh, to, to undermine him and, and uh, play him up as a kind of uh, uh, divisive uh, figure. Sorry, I think Nimr Nimr probably is not a good example yeah. of a reformist who would cross these divides. Uh, other people like Tawfiq Saif, uh, Jafar Shaib, they're part of a reformist movement. They did come together with other Saudis and they signed petitions. They keep writing in the press or in Mahmoud for example, they keep writing in the press about Watania and promoting Watania. But the problem with these uh, figures, uh, they are intellectuals, they're not clerics. Um, some of them have uh, like scientific background even, uh, like Jafar Shaib. Uh, but they get discredited by their own community and by uh, they never get the trust of the majority. So they are in limbo, they are in between, you know, and they lose their support among their own people, if the government is shooting the protesters, and those people talking about Wataniya, and they're always accused by the majority as well, practicing taqiyya, you know, at the bottom they are Shia. So, you know, it's, it's the context of um, repression is, is really produces its own momentum. Uh, so I'm, I'm a historian, so this was a bit out of my comfort zone, but tried to manage it. Um, uh, so, I mean, just to put some, I mean, so important to obviously historicize um, this current, the gestalt where sectarianism is the primary valence. So, I mean, a lot of my contemporary work, and I know Toby's done work on this, is obviously to look in the 60s, the late 60s and the 70s, and it's just completely 
it's, you know, it's beyond recognition in the sense that you would have Iranians going to Beirut and training with uh, Fatah and the Palestinians and the Palestinian cause was seen as absolutely integral to Iranian liberation from the Pahlavi regime. And these things were seen as absolutely indissociable and it wasn't even an issue. It never even came up. I mean, so, I mean, we have to, obviously we're in a period of real you know, crises. So we have to sort of, I guess, um, hope with uh, a lot of sort of effort as well uh, that it will shift again but uh, this is currently the tragedy which we're, and many others in the region are living through thank you okay let's go to the next question there were some oh there's so many there was one right here in the front yes and then several back there yes next hi thank you guys so much that was very critical and timely um, my question, I guess, would be that it, I completely agree that it's a process of sectarianization and it's not actually a case of sectarianism that led to this war, to the wars in the different parts of the region. But if we look at the case of Lebanon, and we see that in Lebanon, um, it was kind of founded on sectarianism and uh, constitutional engineering was kind of catered towards sectarianism and peace building efforts were attempted to form coalitions between the different parties. Now. If we want to talk about constitutional engineering in the region, um, will we attempt to solve sectarianization by consociationalism, by sectarian political alliances, or is there, should there be another form of um, peace-building processes? I guess my question is. Well, the author of the chapter on Lebanon in our book is not actually at the table this evening, but if you look at your screen, I'm uh, highlighting it. It's a very powerful essay. Where is it there? It's oh. by number 12. number 12. Thank you very much. Basil Salouk, who actually has two chapters in the book. Yes, The Architecture of Sectarianization in Lebanon. He also has chapter uh, two on the sectarianization of geopolitics in the Middle East. And Basel lives in Lebanon. But that you're right that Lebanon is in many, in many ways an outlier for our study. Because sectarianization, if you will, happens from the very inception in Lebanon, right? It's baked into the cake, if you will, of the Lebanese state in a way that it isn't precisely in most of the other case studies in the book. Yes, Iskandar. No, I would say, I mean, just to echo Let's get you, you mic'd. No, just to echo you. I think it's a brilliant question, actually, because obviously we see in Iraq, and I'm not an Iraq expert, so don't, so yeah, but, but we see it very much, a uh, co-associational model institutionalized there, and there is a good case, which I've seen made by scholars, uh, that that has deeply exacerbated sectarian identifications, uh, which previously weren't even close to being as intense as they are today. So, I mean, what that model looks like, You'll have to ask somebody in complex studies, not a historian, but I completely agree with the diagnosis. I mean, it's, it's, it's extremely problematic. Yeah, uh, I think this is really uh, interesting because um, you move from a fluid social situation where identities are fluid and th this happened under colonial rule uh, when tribes were prescribed and defined and if you look if you go to the archives in Britain you see that there are maps that plot, tri plot tribes on them and these are regarded as cohesive groups but the reality wasn't like this tribes, you know, tribal identity, all the tribal people would talk about their pure genealogy, they are like never contaminated by outsider, but 
Anthropologically, that's not true. There are fluid identities. People moved. People even changed tribes. A tribe would bring a, a chief from another tribe and uh, import it and make it its own leader. But once you institutionalize that in a constitution or in a map or in colonial discourse, there is no way to, uh, to uh, uh, express that fluidity. And Lebanon is a classic example, I think, where it is fixed in stone that you, your area where you live, where, where your name, your birth, and you can never move out of that so far. Um, and this is why, getting back to the first question, local movements uh, in his chapter on Lebanon, Basel Salouh, tries to show how various kinds of cross-cutting movements in Lebanon, from labor movements, leftist movements, and most recently the You Stink protests, right, the garbage protests in the summer of 2015, were in many ways, although not perhaps explicitly, were in implicitly very anti-sectarian or were challenging the logic of uh, state sectarian policy. Um, we have so many questions in the back. Why don't you, uh, Sandra, you can decide amongst that cluster of hands up which order to go in. Thank you. Thank you all for the great uh, presentations. Um, what we hear, I think, a lot from um, uh, Sunnis especially was that sectarianism as it relates to politics roots in the 1979 revolution and Iran's attempt to, um, to export the revolution and to you know, uh, financially and politi politically motivate Shias elsewhere, whether it's in Yemen or Lebanon or elsewhere. So I wonder, um, uh, Eskandar or anybody else, I mean, how this, uh, what, one, what the, the response to that, what you would say to those claims, um, and then, um, you know, anything else that you all want to add. Okay, so I'll just preface Eskandar's answer by saying that in the, in the, in the introduction to the book, we identify the three key years in the sectarianization process. The three turning points are 1979, 2003, and 2011 plus, meaning the aftermath, not just the Arab uprisings, but really the counter-revolutionary reactions to the Arab uprisings. So the, the key is to, I think, understand uh, 1979 in, in a complex geopolitical context, not just saying, oh, well, because the Iranian revolution happened, therefore that created the sectarianization process. It's a much more subtle and multi-layered, multi-dimensional story than that. But Eskandar, did you want to respond directly to that point? I, I'm going to take it first. Okay. Um, you're right. That is the primary claim that we hear today as represented six days ago when the Saudi foreign minister claimed that, look, we just can't talk to Iran because they are trying to promote a particular sectarian hegemony on the region rooted in the return of the 12th Imam, and that's just fundamentally unacceptable to the vast majority of the of people. But if you go back to the 1979 revolution, and even up until today, the official narrative of the Islamic Republic is that it supports... Sunni Shia unity. It's not trying to promote officially a sect. Uh, it's trying to promote unity against imperial aggression that is coming from outside, coming through Israel, and coming through you know various pro-Western regimes in the region. But officially, the narrative. Iran has, for example, every year this annual. Uh, conference of unity um, where it brings people from around the world most of them Sunnis and it tries to claim that it's standing for um, brotherhood and unity but the reality is is that because of Iran's own failed I think revolutionary project and the fact that I think in many ways 
the Gulf states were able to project this sense that Iran uh, is a failed state and is sort of a sectarian state at the end of the day. And because of Iran's, you know, primarily failure in uh, Syria in terms of its claim to represent um, unity uh, among Muslims, Sunnis and Shias, right now Iran's only appeal to mobilize people um, is through a certain uh, distinct Shia narrative that it does at a local level among poor Shia communities that it needs to mobilize to fight its wars in, in Syria in this case. So privately, if you listen to how Iran recruits these militias uh, in Afghanistan and uh, in Pakistan and in Iraq, it's deeply through a sectarian a narrative rooted in the martyrdom of Imam Hussein and the uh, historic suffering that she is. But publicly, the official narrative of the regime is that it stands for um, unity. It's not trying to promote um, a particular sect. It really is trying to promote revolutionary change based on a revolutionary model that the Islamic Republic claims to stand for. Um, can I? Please. Point? Uh, thank you, Zach, for this uh, important question. I mean, you know, the answer could go from anywhere from one minute to, yeah. well, quite a long time. Um, but, I mean, I think uh, it's important to, to, to not forget that, you know, the Middle East, as uh, Iskandar has mentioned, is a highly penetrated regional system, you know, and that this is an IR term. But it means that, well, basically, foreigners have a big, you know, role to play, and particularly the United States. So, um, uh, don't forget that uh, before the Iranian Revolution, right, the Shah was, was um, America's most important ally in the whole region, and we have somebody here who's you know, written a, a, you know, a, a wonderful book on that to topic, Roham uh, Alvandi, and um, uh, um, in 1979, um, uh, obviously changes all of that, but the alliances with the Gulf, particularly with Saudi Arabia, which was the kind of the junior partner in that, in, in the Arab world, I mean, in the Middle East, um, uh, continues, and Saudi Arabia becomes, together with Israel, probably the most important American ally in the region. Uh, 1979, the jihad in Afghanistan starts, um, and then the Iran-Iraq war starts, so you have actually um, uh, through a continuation of these kind of Cold War alliances, you have um, uh, a new kind of regional system emerges which is built on basically containing Iran. And anti-Shiism uh, by default becomes one of the ideological kind of components of that. Um, uh, initially, perhaps not so important um, because in Afghanistan it's not it's not one of the main things. So, But the, the same kind of um, ideological well, devices that, that you know, make anti-communism, that, that at that time sponsor anti-communism, um, they are also very much anti-Shia. So the, the clerics that endorse the jihad in Afghanistan, well, you know, once the jihad is finished, they turn their eyes um, onto Iran uh, and the Shia. And um, throughout the 1990s, uh, when this is this decade where, well, before 9-11 and, 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 and so on and so forth, this continues. Um, so anti-Shiism um, anti is a natural byproduct of, of the long-standing U.S.-Saudi alliance and, you know, the, the, the sponsoring of Saudi and Gulf uh, 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 money for Islamic causes around the world. Um, and that is, I suppose, what one could say as an answer to, to your question. That doesn't mean that Iran obviously didn't try to export its revolution. I mean, of course, as Nader said, 
in, in ideally until today it wants to be a, a pan-Islamic revolution. Um, and uh, you know, I, I think one of the key puzzles that still hasn't really been answered is why Sunni Islamic movements initially um, were quite favorable to the Iranian revolution but throughout the 1980s kind of switched position. I'm trying to trace that. It's not so easy. Mm. Um, you know, we can go back less, uh, not as far back as 1979, just go back to 2006, just over a decade ago. Think back, who were the two most popular figures on the so-called problematic term Arab street amongst Sunni Arabs? Uh, you had Nasrallah and Ahmadinejad, two non-Sunnis, one non-Arab. This was the summer of 2006 with the Lebanese, uh, Israel's excursion, shall we say, into Lebanon and Ahmadinejad's uh, uh, fiery rhetoric. Now, it's kind of unthinkable now, just 10 years later, it's almost unthinkable that two non-Sunnis, one non-Arab, would be such popular figures on the Sunni Arab street, as it were. But this is very recent history. The sectarianization process has, has been accelerated and intensified very quickly in a very re small window of time. There was, Eskandar please, Eskandar. No, I was just going to add, um, you have to kind of look, take, oh, it is on, okay. Contingency, like I think it's just very, very important. So I mean, now everybody looks at the Syrian-Iranian lines. Oh, of course, it's an Alawi regime. Oh, of course, they're, they're Shia. It's all the same, you know. Whereas people tend to forget, you know, that we had a very strong, powerful um, Iraqi state, you know, Saddam Hussein, strong man, very much, who um, also actually very much diminished or alleviated the, the, the sort of the tensions also between Saudi Arabia and acted as a buffer and actually received plenty, you know, financial support um, from Saudi Arabia, Iraq, the Iraqi state, during the Iran-Iraq war. So, I mean... We have to sort of look at very much the sort of historical trajectory and really, you know, take that very, very seriously. Um, so that's um, just what I wanted to add because it's a... Uh, Sandra, there were more questions in that back area and, uh, yes, the entire back seems to be very eager to engage. Should I stand? I have to stand up. Right. Toby, thanks for mentioning my book. I'll give you a check at the end. <laughs> it's also a very good book that will stand the test of time. Um, uh, so I just want to come back to, I, 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 I like this distinction you make between sectarianism and sectarianization. I guess it's the, it's the difference between Islam and political Islam. It's a history of political Islam is what you're really talking about, um, as opposed to a history of Shiism, which is inherently anti-Sunni, or a history of Sunnism, which is anti, inherently anti-Shia. But they're fluid concepts, these things, and there are many, many different versions of Sunni political Islam, and there are also many different versions of, historically at least, of Shia political Islam. My question is why there is no, or no longer really, any successful pan-political Islam movement, you know. You mentioned the leftists in the 1960s and 70s who managed to bridge that divide. Um, certainly, national, the nationalists had uh, transnational movements that could transcend that divide. Why is it that, you know, for example, I mean, to give you one example, um, Ayatollah Khamenei has taken a great interest in, in the works of Sayyid Qutb, of, you know, many of the sort of intellectual founding fathers of the Muslim Brotherhood, um, yet you don't see any, you know, global, pan-regional, I don't know, pan-Islamist 
Um, so is there something inherent? Is there something different? Is there something special? Um, is there something uniquely, I would perhaps argue, authentic about this particular identity as opposed to others that mm. makes it impossible to construct okay. it yeah. in the fluid yeah. way that you're talking about? Mm. Um, yeah, thank you. I think it all depends on what you mean by a successful pan movement. Uh, what, what is the criteria for success? I mean, we do have transnational Islamist movement uh, from Hizb tahrir to the Salafis to the Muslim Brotherhood. But I'm not sure if you mean that um, successful is seizing power, becoming the state. There had been some... Uh, uh, experiments. They've done it in Sudan. Uh, also, they have done it peacefully by election in Algeria, in um, uh, the Palestinian territory, uh, also um, in other places. But it is like how you define successful. Oh, yeah. So you're saying that the Sunnis. I don't think there is something inherent in the Sunni movement, uh, Islamist movement. Um, I mean, as mentioned, um, in 1979, uh, the Islamists were um, basically thrilled by the experience of the Iranian um, revolution. And also Khomeini himself. I mean, there were delegations. If you read uh, Hassanin Haikal, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Egyptian writer, famous writer, he, w he went uh, and interviewed Khomeini and wrote favorably. Um, and he wasn't an Islamist. But even the Islamists, I mean, the Muslim Brotherhood, they kept going. And one of the factors that worried the so-called Sunni monarchies was this appeal of the Iranian revolution and its model among the Islamists, because they did endorse it. And in fact, it was the only, as far as they're concerned, the successful experiment of having an Islamist movement reaching power and staying in power for so long. But I think pan-Islamism exists. Um, they uh, have, uh, initially they were not sectarian. They became sectarian, but not all of them. Sections of them are sectarians. And, you know, the worry that, for example, Saudi Arabia had in 2011 when the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood uh, got elected to power was that Iran and the Muslim Brotherhood would actually build bridges, sort of promoting whatever they call as Islamic democracy. So, the, the, I mean, historically, this wasn't, hasn't always been the case. Yeah. I would just add that... Um I think the answer to the question largely revolves around the deeply entrenched nature of the nation state in the Middle East. Most of the mainstream political Islamists are nationalists, they're religious nationalists. The Egyptian Islamists are Egyptian, the Tunisians are, they have, you know, they're Tunisian Islamists, and the Iranians are Iranian, you know, Islamists. They have trans-pan-Islamic sentiments, but fundamentally the focus of their attention and the driver of their political behavior is what's happening with their own nation states. I think that's the fundamental reality that is often lost. And of course, when you speak of successful pan-Islamist movements, none of them are successful. The only pan-Islamist pan movements that we have around today are the extremist Al-Qaeda and ISIS varieties, which champion a, a, a cause of pan-Islamism, but really with very little appeal. And yeah, I just wanted to add, yeah. Um, it's a really good question, and actually, because um, in the 50s as well, in Iran, we have the 
and the 40s and the 50s, we have the Fadiyan Islam, you know, led by Nawab Safavi. So, you know, it's a very, you, apparently it appears to be a very sectarian name, but he actually went to Jordan, he went to Egypt, he met with Nasser, he met with Naguib, he was actually very impressed by the model of the Ikhwan uh, and wanted to import it to Iran and tried his utmost, but it was, you know, very deracinated by the, uh, the Pahlavi regime. But the uniting factor was obviously these were both countries which are Egypt and Iran and obviously Transjordan, utterly dominated by Britain, I mean by colonial domination. So a sort of a form of anti-colonialism was what united them to some extent and led them to maybe paper over those more creedal sort of uh, differences, which actually, to be honest, a lot of these people came from the petty bourgeoisie and weren't actually at all or artisanal classes and weren't at all versed in the minutiae of, you know, she, uh, so likewise. So um, what you see then, gradually, obviously, you have the crest of Arab nationalism and then obviously it's kind of gradual decline. And then what you see often is, uh, I guess, rule, which is sort of somewhat subcontracted or put to sort of to elites, elites which are sympathetic to the United States and to other powers in the course of the Cold War. Um, and then obviously what then happens, I think it taps into what exactly what Madawi was saying, is that then you have these elites who exploit these very much, these differences, emphasize them in order to preserve and use them as strategies to preserve their power. And this was something which was less, far less a case at the, in the age of, you know, uh, um, do we have time for one more question, Sandra? Yeah. Okay, great. There are, again, more hands in the back. I think this gentleman over here on this side has had his hand up for quite some time and should be rewarded for his patience. Yeah. Hi. Um, I have a sort of general question about the premise of the book, so it should be an easy one. Um, while the claim is that... Um, sectarianism is not an inherent uh, historical characteristic of, of, the, of the region. How do you address the claim that the success of these various sectarianization projects have altered the uh, collective historical memory of, of the population uh, in a way where now sectarianism is self-sustaining? Mm. Would we need, as opposed to just stopping these sectarianization projects, would we need desectarianization projects in order to roll them back? This is an excellent uh, question. And, and the conclusion of the book, the concluding chapter of the book by our colleague Timothy Sisk at the University of Denver attempts precisely a, um, to address this, um, peace building in sectarianized conflicts, uh, which is really... Uh, an, a, an investigation into the prospects for desectarianization. He draws, he's not a Middle East scholar as such, he's actually a comparativist who, who studies cases like Northern Ireland and Bosnia and, uh, um, and other cases uh, of deep, uh, deeply divided societies, civil wars, and how those societies were able to um, climb out of the carnage and find some way um, to coexist in peace. And I will say that um, I mean, this is a very important, maybe we need to do a second book actually exploring the, 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 this question in more detail. And, and more importantly than a book, we probably need to convene a series of actual you know, meetings between activists and 
you know, back-channel negotiations and track two diplomacy efforts around this because this is really going to be the, a big nut to crack. I think that it's much easier. This is my pessimistic note. Our book is very much an intellectual intervention to expose the artificiality of the sectarianization process, right? It, and that's fine and well, and we spent several years compiling this book, and I think it's a worthy effort, but it's not, that doesn't mean that once you've exposed it intellectually and shown its historical roots and its political mechanisms, then we'll, then we'll just all, you know, get the memo and go about, you know, uh, dropping the sectarian narrative. It's not that simple, because this thing does take root, and it becomes real. Um, in people's hearts and minds. It, it's, it's, it, it takes on a life of its own. It can become a force to be reckoned with, and it's much easier to sectarianize than to desectarianize, if you will. Once the sectarian genie is out of the bottle, it's not so simple to get it back in. It could take decades. It could take generations. But it's certainly not impossible, and I think that's really the point of the book, is that you don't have to go back that far in history to see that the region was not principally organized around sectarian fault lines, but other lines, and it could be otherwise. Does anyone else on the panel want to address that? I think, I mean, it's an important question. But I th I, what I want to say is by focusing on the Middle East, we do that because we're specialists of the Middle East. But I, if there is ever a series of, of volumes, we, I would like to see how the Middle East fits in with a general global trend. Mm. I think what we would call it is the perils of identity politics. Uh, we have moved over the last three decades from people talking about their civil and political rights and, and citizenship to talking about identity politics. Groups uh, in plural societies, whether we are in Britain or the US or uh, elsewhere, are, are claiming rights on the basis of their identity, not on the basis of their interest as a group. And therefore, once you go into this uh, sort of liberal identity politics, you abolish civil and political rights, and you focus on uh, your rights as groups uh, who claim certain rights from the system that controls them on the basis of their identity. So this, I think this is very dangerous, and it's not happening just in the Middle East. In the Middle East, it happens to express itself, itself in sectarian terms. But if you are here during Brexit, the elections for Brexit, it's about us and the immigrants, or rather the immigrants and us. Um, and uh, there are so many identity politics that is spread around the globe, in the U.S. now, in here. And it, it, it is a constructed sort of situation where governments, people in power, entrepreneurs, political parties use this identity politics for electioneerings, for gaining certain uh, constituencies. And, and th th this is a global phenomenon. In the Middle East, it, this uh, sort of project of promoting yourself on the basis of your identity has expressed itself in, in sectarianization. But in other parts of the world, it's expressing itself in, in different ways. And we have seen it, and in Europe as well, in addition to, to Britain. Yes. Um, um, as a final, I mean, very good question. The first thing I'd like to say is uh, please buy our book, because the last chapter deals with your question in some serious way. Um, but historical memory around sectarian identities, as we've been talking about, can be mobilized and manufactured and reconstructed. You know, Danny made the point that 10 years ago, the most popular figures on the Sunni Arab street 
were Shia figures, you know, in the context of the Israel-Lebanon war. Ten years is not a lot of time. Things have changed in part because there's a deliberate attempt by uh, authoritarian regimes to construct and manufacture a certain sectarian narrative that, uh, that, uh, in, in pursuit of political gain um, and silencing voices that try to challenge that narrative. That's an important part. But I also want to sort of strongly emphasize that we're not trying to say that there has never been sectarian tensions or differences between different groups. Those differences are always there. I often tell my American students, if you think that the problem of sectarianism is simply a problem of those people on the other side of the world who simply haven't come to terms with modernity and can't live um, a, a, in intolerance like we do in the, in the West, well, just look at what happens in the United States between um, uh, white communities and black communities during times of tension in Ferguson. Um, because of socioeconomic problems, there are deep cleavages between those groups. And they've increased as a result of Donald Trump, who has tried to manufacture and manipulate a particular set of white grievances. And you see an uptake in communal tensions when you have politicians who exploit those existing feelings for political gain. So you have that happening in many cases in Middle Eastern societies at a much higher level. And of course, the big difference is the authoritarian context versus a democratic context. I can't see the problem of sectarianism being resolved and a process of desectarianization beginning in any substantive way until we can begin to see serious democratic transitions where people can have a voice, where they can have representation at a table, and then they can start to sort of try to desectarianize. Outside of that framework, I don't think there's any hope of rolling this trend back. Well, let me say this, and Sandra, am I right that we are sort of at the end of our time now, or do we have a little bit more time? No I think we're done, but here, let me say this, um, two things. One is that the LSE's next event, which you should certainly attend, is coming up. Um, we, we had it online here for a second. Now, why am I, here we go. It is on Tuesday, the 30th of May. Hugh Roberts from Tufts University, although a Brit, I believe, living on the other side of the pond, argues that the Algerian Socialist Forces Front's achievements as an opposition movement have been limited because it has not been engaged in opposition properly understood, merely dissidents. For more information, you can go to the Middle East Center website. Speaking of uh, leftist movements in the history of the region. Um, let me finally close by thanking the LSE's Middle East Center and its wonderful staff and also our publisher. I would be um, absolutely, it would be a horrible omission if I were to overlook our wonderful publisher Hearst based here in London uh, who have kindly set up a table just outside this room with copies of the book uh, available for sale at a very handsome discount a handsome volume at a handsome discount. What's not to like about that? And uh, we would be happy to discuss it a little bit further um, out in the hallway if you're interested. I should also say that if you have uh, colleagues, friends, contacts who are interested in this topic, uh, Nader and I are here for a few more days. Uh, we're speaking at Oxford tomorrow and then Wednesday at Chatham House with Madawi and then Thursday at Royal Holloway, University of London. That's Thursday evening, so we're still around. This is the first of a series of events in the UK, and we were absolutely thrilled to share the stage with three of our contributors to the book. And thank you all for your attention and excellent questions. Thank you.